0: Welcome to our special series, Tales from the Trail. A number of episodes that we've recorded as we're on the road around the western states for our winter clinic tour. We're sitting down with makers, craftsmen, tax store or western store owners, and ranchers as well, horsemen, to visit, to catch up, to hear their stories, and we thought it'd be interesting to share these as a special series on our podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy. Hey there, guys. Thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to be catching up with Keith Seidel of Seidel Saddlery here in Cody, Wyoming. And uh, just hearing more about his stories and and how he got started and what his experience is. He does some awesome leather work, custom belts and buckles and and has available here in his store. And then, of course, saddle making. Very, very nice saddle work. And, you know, I, if you were following me on Instagram here, the last few weeks, you saw where I stopped by the Morgan breeder in Thermopolis. Well, that is Keith's dad that has that stud there. Uh, Three studs, actually. Some very, very nice Morgan horses there. Um, And it was exciting to to meet him and and work a little bit with those horses. And and, uh, so that's, that's pretty cool, too, if you check that out, bar none organs there in thermopolis but without further ado here's here's uh, our conversation with keith and i hope you enjoy it
1: <laughs> i was in california with a good friend of mine really good friend of mine that's a good trainer and he rides bob saddles he rides he's got some well made but you know he gets sponsorships and so he's riding high-end commercial grade saddles sure um but subject to whatever is available, you know, whatever they're building. And uh, he's got this little mare that is coming along really well. He can ride her about 15 minutes and then she just comes apart. And uh, well, what does she do? Well, her head comes up, her tail comes up, she hollows all out and she just, you know, you'll get a, he'll, he'll, she'll try to stop, but then she'll just hop right out of it. And uh, why well, I explained to him, your saddle's got too much rock take the rock out of the saddle and and, and see what happens. Well, I don't know how to do that. And I tried to explain to him. For a year, he's having no luck, and I ended up being there. And I watched him. I watched him ride this horse through the whole process, and she did beautifully for about 10 minutes. You know, slid probably, sliding stops maybe 6 or 8 feet. You know, certainly respectable. They're not 20-foot-11s, but they're not bad. Um but as he starts working through she starts dropping her lead she starts um she won't round out she's hollowing and everything just starts to come apart about 10 minutes into this ride yeah and uh, so about that time he just, just goes back to the bar and puts her away and i'm like why you done oh yeah this is it it's all we can get out of her. oh i think i can fix your problem well what's my problem i had taken some video on my phone i showed him so watch what this horse is doing and what you're doing. Said so he thinks he's doing something wrong, so you're not doing anything wrong. <clears throat> the saddle is moving, it's gradually creeping farther and farther forward because where the rock is, the, uh, uh, wherever the lowest point is in the tree, is going to find the lowest part of the horse's back. Sure. On a younger horse, that's going to be a shorter, smaller horse generally, it's going to be farther forward on the horse's back. So that tree is going to slide forward as you're using it. Pretty soon it's up over the shoulder blades. Now you're creating problems. So uh, this tree had gradually moved farther forward, farther forward. and um, So he didn't have any panel pads where you could take the panels out or anything. So I just got a couple of big bath towels and folded them in thirds or fourths. And I laid one across the front over the withers. And I laid one across the back, about just behind the kennel. So we put the saddle on the horse. And, you know, we probably have two inches of clearance in yeah. the middle. Yeah. Oh, that's not good. That's bridging. I just... Humor me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And uh, put the saddle on the horse, hinched her up, and I said, now go do it again. Oh, she's done. He said, she won't do anything. Humor me. Go yeah. ride her again. Well, he wouldn't yeah. even ride her from the barn down to the to the arena. <laughs> so he rocks her down to the arena, and she's pretty sour. I mean, you can see she's pretty cranky. Her yeah. ears are back, she's, and she is not happy. She's already said
0: she's done. And
1: uh, he gets on her. And she's got kind of a little crow hop, and her tail is in the air. and About maybe a third of the way around the arena, and she begins to soften, and you can just watch the tension just, just fall away. Yeah. Just drained out of her. By the time he was around the arena one time, she was relaxed and settled, and he's looking at me like, what has happened? Put her through the run. <clears throat> he does some figure eights. Her flying lead changes are absolutely perfect. This is after she's quit him already. Right. Yeah. He comes around and he goes down the arena. He's going to slide. This horse slid so far she runs into the fence. <laughs> she's never slid this far in her life. This is after she's already quit him. Yeah. What happened? We just took the pain away. Yeah. She was able to keep her back legs under her and slide because the back wasn't lifting the saddle and his 200 pounds off of her.
0: Right, and putting it on that concentrated area. When you put that much weight right there,
1: what do you think's gonna happen? Well, it was obvious in the video, but he wasn't using video. Right. More and more people I see are using video and it really helps them to isolate what their problems are. They still don't know how to fix the problem. So he couldn't believe the difference. Yeah. That horse now is literally the champion horse in that area. And it doesn't belong to him. It's a, it's a client horse and the non-pro. And, you know, she really couldn't do much with the horse. And now this, this horse is the client to beat at all of the shows. Oh. And all we did was cut a pad apart. Yeah. You know? Yeah. so We just took a pad cut it, cut big holes out of it. And that's what he... So now he's learned to use that on virtually every horse he rides because all of his saddles have too much rock. Right. They fit fine when you're standing still relaxed, Right, but you don't ride them standing still.
0: So you've been sharing quite a few details and stories and, and sort of some insight into saddle making and how a lot of saddles these days actually don't fit horses. A lot of the problems that people are having is due to tack issues, specifically saddle issues a lot of times. But Let's go back. How did you get started making saddles? <laughs> I want to hear a little bit about your history and, and kind of how you got to be where you're at today because the knowledge that you have and the, and the skills, not just the leather carving, or I mean, all the skills that go into it, that had to have come from somewhere. It did. We,
1: we raise horses. We've always raised horses as long as I can remember. and So we broke a lot of equipment. <coughs> and uh, my dad was a poor Baptist preacher, so we couldn't afford to pay somebody else to fix it. And uh, he was good friends with the boot repair guy down the street. And uh, so I used to go in there. I I liked craftsmanship. And I would go in there after school and hang out. And um, I guess I made a nuisance of myself because they finally taught me how to, uh, (laughs) you know, tear apart boots and polish boots and, you know, do the basic things. And I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And was that in Douglas? Or no, Cody. I was here in Cody. Here in Cody. Yeah, okay. I grew up here in Cody. Okay. So, uh, um, yeah, then he and my dad decided that they were, um, they they were big hunters, you know, like most people are, and they wanted some new pack saddles, and so they bought some old junk harness at an old auction, and thought, well, that's all right. We'll give it to Keith to fix up some harness and make us some pack saddles. <laughs> and I didn't know anything at all about what I was doing, but you know, he knew the fundamentals of leatherwork, so he taught me what to do. But how do I make it fit and all of that? Well, we had a lot of horses, so I just learned, did it by trial and error and going out and fitting it. Well, um, I don't know. I guess I was intrigued because I did a lot of research. I remember, you know, looking at a lot of catalogs and getting other pack saddles and uh, going to outfitters. I had a couple of friends that were outfitters, and we rode horses a lot, and I did a lot of packing, and, you know. So, um figured out how things worked yeah I, when things don't work it's easy enough to isolate where the problem is but it's not always that easy to figure out why you know um the figuring out what the problem is is usually pretty easy <laughs> but figuring out how to fix the problem can sometimes be really challenging well, I don't, I don't. and you know i think i tell people a lot fitting horses is easy knowing how to fit horses is not so easy <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, I I, uh, I got started in that kind of stuff and made a lot of pack equipment stuff. And then there was a local saddle maker over in Powell that had advertised for some help. And I thought, Great, I think I might like to do this. So I went over and applied for a job. Well, I was 13 years old. <laughs> and he laughed at me. He said, I can't hire you to, until you're 14. The state won't let me hire anybody under 14. All right, so... Um, The day I turned 14, I went to work for him. That's awesome. (laughs) And uh, so that was working for Ralph Shimon and I I, I joke a lot. You know, I started literally at the bottom and worked my way up because his saddles are really, really rough and really, really crude. Um, Probably the most important thing I learned working for him was a saddle only requires three things. It needs to be comfortable for the horse. It needs to be comfortable for the rider. And it has to be strong enough for the application. Yeah. That's good. Everything else is cosmetic. Well, that's true. And uh, at that stage in my career, that was fine. All I wanted to do was build something functional. Right. Uh, Later on, I learned that the money is in the cosmetics. (laughs) (laughs) There's no living to be made in functional saddles, but there's a big living to be made in cosmetics. and he tried really hard to get me to quit the saddle business because there's just no money in it. No But, you know, that was a factory. Uh, we made roughly four to 500 saddles a year. Oh, wow. It was a factory. Right. Um, and and uh, he never intended to teach me how to build the saddles. All I did was build parts. Right, and after a couple of years he had me putting in ground seats and stitching horns and stitching candle bindings and they were really really rough and crude and I didn't know they were because at that point in time I didn't know about cosmetics.
0: Sure. You know
1: I had heard of King's Saddlery and Sheridan but I sure didn't know anything about them you know (laughs) and uh, these saddles were rough and crude and as I got better I learned you know uh, a lot of the ins and outs of better saddles and One day I went to King's. I'm going to go over there and see that. And, you know, I was probably maybe 16. Yeah. You know, and then I was as arrogant as a 16 year old could get, probably. (laughs) I walked in there and I told him I'm a saddle maker and I wanted to come over and. Visit their saddle shop, and boy, it didn't take but a second or two for them to grab me by both arms and usher me outside. Because uh, <laughs> that was the time when we didn't talk to other saddle makers. And right, they covered everything up and kept it all secrets. And you know, those guys became good friends 20 years later. But it took 20 years, <laughs> and it took a lot of experience before I could even become, you know, friends with them. Right. You know, and you hear all of the stories about how generous Don King was with his information. Later in the life, he surely was, but I can promise you earlier on, he was not. <laughs> that was a change. So, you know, but I was a big threat at that time. Sure. And I was another saddle maker. Didn't yeah. matter if I was any good or not. Yeah. So, um, you know, and after then, I, shoot, I, I went, when when I got out of high school, I went from saddle shop to saddle shop. Anybody that would hire me, I would work there. Right. Some shops were really rough, but. Once in a while, I'd get to a shop that was really good and had several saddle makers you could learn from. Right, and I tried to get to know all the saddle makers in whatever area, so that I could learn more. I didn't have a life, you know. That's Uh, all you did. I didn't know the first thing about how to live. I just knew how to work (laughs) with leather, and that was my only real interest. You know, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a. uh, I had no no life. Yeah. what was one of your favorite uh,
0: shops in that experience going around to different places? Probably
1: Bob's Western World in Scottsdale. I was where I could get I got the most diversity. Right. They had 10 or 12 guys working there at that time. It was in the old store down in downtown Scottsdale. Okay. And uh, several Mexican workers, George Rios worked there at that time. Before he split off and had George Rio saddles, right? Uh, so I got to know George really well, and George was not only a good saddle maker but a good tooler, uh, Mexican style. But you know, I, I didn't stamp anything at all for ten years. I made saddles for ten years. I never picked up a stamping tool because back then saddle makers made saddles. Toolers right. did the tooling. They didn't build saddles. They didn't build anything. They just did stamping. Right. And so uh, things were changing. Um, I had a lot of saddles in the works at that time. I was working on probably 10 to 15 saddles at a time. I did a lot of show saddles and most of the saddles for there were either show saddles or reining and cutting saddles. Sure, They had another guy that did the cutters and I did show saddles and reining saddles. And I'd have... You know, ten or twelve or fifteen saddles at once going, wow. waiting for toolers to get parts done. You know, right? Right. And I have saddles at part at different stages all over the place, waiting for the <laughs> toolers. They'd, uh, so they so they, I went to the boss and I need another tooler. Well, if you can find one, he said, I'll hire him. Well, I didn't know anything about how hard help was to get. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did. I got on the phone and I'm calling all the guys I know and found out it they're not so easy to find right well I happened to call Kings uh, and talk to Billy Gardner at the right day (laughs) Uh, Billy and Don were good friends Billy was Don's apprentice for many many years About I don't know 10 or 15 years younger than Don but um, they were very close and Bill's work was identical to to Don's and uh, they they had a f- they had they fought quite a bit and apparently they had had a big fight the day I called. Yeah. And Bill said, "Can I call you back after work?" Yeah, sure, I'll still be here. So he called me back and he was looking for another place to go. He was mad, and you. so he moved to Arizona. And I'll for the next here. two years, I got to work right straight across the workbench from Don from Billy Gardner. Right and. Not only was he a phenomenal saddle maker, but he was one of the very best toolers in the business. Right. Well, all of a sudden, I had a new interest. Yeah. Because I had no interest in tooling before him. (laughs) And I had seen King Saddles, but didn't know how that was done. Yeah. And with him right across the bench, so that's when I started tooling. Interesting. And uh, so that was... But there were, I'm going to say, six or eight other saddle companies at the time, all of which employed six or eight or ten or twelve saddle makers. Right. Some of them were pretty rough, crude, uh, you know, ranch-style saddles. Uh, some of them were rodeo saddles, the arena-style ropers and things like that. Yeah. Um, but there were also several other saddle makers around the area. And uh, so, like I said, I had no life. So I got to go meet them all, and I became pretty good friends with most of them. Right. And uh, some of the some of the real old guys that had worked at, at Porters, you know, like uh, Rocky Minster still works. He's in Prescott now. He's still alive. I think he's 82 or 83 years old. One of the oldest saddle makers left alive, and he's still building. Wow. Uh, but, you know, he was an apprentice at Porters. And uh, um, there was an Indian fellow... Um, Can't think of his name right now. Uh, He was down in Globe. He was a strange, strange duck, but good craftsman. Yeah. Um, But there were a lot of saddle makers right around there, and so um, a fellow named Victor was an English trained strap man. Did some of the finest strap work. Okay. Taught me to stitch fourteen stitches to the inch. Yeah. You know. I have no use for that today, but I can hand stitch fourteen stitches to the inch, yeah. and I have the equipment to do it. <laughs> but so all of that is, you know, that was big experience there. Yeah. Um, I stayed in Arizona probably five or six years. Right. And uh, yeah. I, from there, I was in California for a while. I went to work and did some apprentice work with Art Van Cor. Okay. Uh, he was at the time the top dog in the show saddle business. Him right. and Don Masson were kind of at each other's competitor and um but so I, I spent a few months with Vancor but I, I still lived in Arizona so I go back and forth right um then I, I stayed in the show saddle business for quite a while I moved to Colorado there were a lot of saddle makers in Colorado and I hated well I wanted to get back to the mountains I kept working my way farther north and yeah so uh, um I was in Colorado for a while and went back to California for a while and, um, once once I could get that experience where I was good enough, I could pick and choose. Yeah. You know, you want to learn how to make the cutting saddles? Find the best cutting saddle company and go work for them. Right. You know, they'd, they'd hire me. Everybody will hire anybody that knows how. Yeah. And even today, if you are accomplished, we'll hire you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So So then you came full circle and set up back here. came back code? here in
1: 94. Okay. Um, I had two little girls and. My wife got tired of traveling from shop to shop, saddle to town to saddle town, and it was time to settle down. And um, Wyoming has been my home forever, and it, once it gets its hooks in you, it won't let you leave. Yeah. I kept trying, and it kept bringing me back. So, um, But we looked at a lot of places, and there's some places I really like in Wyoming that I would live besides here. But uh, Sheridan, there were 60 full-time saddle makers in the early 90s. Sixty! Holy How am I going to mo- make a living competing with that? In yes. uh, Cody, there were 18 full-time saddle makers making their living here. Uh, Lisa's folks live here, and so we had built-in babysitters. And right. um, My folks lived in Thermopolis at that time, so it yep. was kind of close. And yep. um, So we ended up settling down here and um, got a place on Main Street. didn't take very long to find out what the tourist money was all about (laughs) how to make a living without actually doing all the work so and let's largely responsible for the success it's Um, a good location the location is the best in the state really yeah Um, yeah when when it's good it's really really good yeah exactly yeah so So what's one of the
0: biggest changes you've seen sort of over the course of your career we were talking earlier a little bit about saddle fit and the way trees are shaped and and it may be hard for you to put your finger on one thing, but what are some of the changes that you've seen in the way saddles are made? You were saying before about when you got started, a lot of times there were shops with 6, 8, 10, 12 guys in there, and sometimes you were just making certain parts or part of a certain process. Whereas now, it at least seems to me like there's quite a few saddle makers out there that do the whole process themselves. They may have one or two guys that help them or an apprentice or something, but... What, what are some of those changes that you've seen?
1: That's probably the biggest change over the last 30 to 40 years is the industry went from shops working with several guys at a time. You know, every shop had three or four. A, sh- a small shop had three or four. There were no, or virtually no, one-horse shops back then. Oh, dear. And over the last 30 to 40 years, it's gradually turned into a cottage industry, saddle makers, um, I I know for me that kind of is what happened too. Um, shops would close, and so you're out of a job. You're looking for another one. Uh, shops would sell, and you don't like the new owner, or they change to a a new format, and right. went from you know higher grade working saddles to budget uh, show saddles, or or uh, right. you know barrel racing saddles and things like that. And so. Um, I don't want to work here. I don't want to do that kind of work, and so I would go to another shop. And after many shops like that, I got where I don't need to be kicking around from closing shops to closing (laughs) shops. I can do it as well as they're doing it, so I'm going to go do it on my own. Yeah. Um, but for me, on my own meant I would hire two or three people. Right. You know, I'd run the shop. That was that was that was the format. Well. Today, the format is, I don't need two or three people, I'm going to do it myself. Right. And so, you know, they they start out, a lot of them start out tooling, and they don't know anything about building. And, you know, when you're just doing leather projects, wallets and purses and, and briefcases, and the little projects get bigger and bigger, well, pretty soon, oh, I want to build a saddle. That's, and so they're going to start building saddles. <laughs> well, a lot of them build a saddle out of a book, you know, and there's not a book on the market that is... Con- conclusive Um, the Al Stolman saddle making encyclopedia didn't even exist you know until probably 20-25 years ago right Um, so that wasn't available and that's probably the most complete that's available today Um, I I had read several others I have I had three or four books in my uh, collection at that time but none of them were very good You, you could get half a saddle built but then you'd run into a spot where this is not working well, and you look at another book, and, oh, this is a totally different way. you try it different ways. Yeah. So most of these uh, individual saddle makers, they kind of learned it that way. They'd... Saddle makers weren't sharing information. Right. People might come and talk to me. Would you teach me how? <laughs> no, I'm not going to teach you how, because that was the culture. That was the mindset. We didn't teach people how to do it unless you were working for us we didn't teach you how to do it right and so they were stuck having to learn it that way and I think that added to the progression to the cottage industry right um, now the bulk of the custom saddle makers are one-horse shops most of them work out of the garage uh, they may have a, a rented shop but most of them don't yeah um, most of them are struggling for orders. They don't know where their next order's coming from and think that social media is the only marketing tool available to them and so if you rely entirely on social media, I have a good friend Montana that's a very talented saddle maker, lives on a main street, doesn't even put out a sign, can't figure out why people can't find him. Like, <laughs> put up a sign. <laughs> You've got a nice sign. When I put that sign up on the front, I paid a lot of money for it I bet you did Um at that time it was a ton of money and, and but I felt they designed it for me on Billings and they brought me the designs and I'm like I got to have this sign yeah so I coughed up and paid the money went to the banker cause I didn't have any money I, said, I went to the bank and uh he'd been really selective about what he'd give me money for he was pretty tight he looked took one look at that design and said no problem, we'll give you the money for this. And that sign paid for itself in a couple of months. I mean, yeah. it was the best marketing I've ever done. Yeah. So I learned the value of putting up a good sign. Yeah. But, but having the location and the retail sure, store, it combined, you know, all of that yeah. generated its own income. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. I think that that culture that you're talking about of not passing on information, that I think it was pretty prevalent in the Western culture for a long time. And we through the last even centuries, I think we've lost a lot of knowledge. I know in horsemanship in, in understanding um, the best way to work with horses and, and uh, the way they work and the way they, even the biomechanics and some of the um, real kind of scientific stuff that goes into that and bit making and, and, mm-hmm. and fitting a, a mouthpiece to a specific individual horse.
1: It'd be great if the horse could tell us what he wants to carry. Yeah. What's comfortable for him, but he can't. He can't. But he does if we just learn to listen to his language. That's right. Same thing with the saddle. That's right. It's no different. That's right. How does it work? Does it work? Does it not work? And
0: it's kind of cool to see, you know, that changing over the last, you know, decade to three decades, you know, where information's being passed on a little more willingly, a little more freely, um,
1: yeah, the 60s were really bad for the saddle business. Uh, technology was taking over, and saddle absolutely. shops were dying right and left. And prices went from, you know, $150 for a full-tooled saddle to $900 for a full-tooled saddle within five years. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was that was insane. From the early 60s to the mid-60s, the prices just skyrocketed. And... Uh, uh, that also was conducive to saddle shops closing up and guys, you know, left out on their own. What are we going to do next? Yeah. And uh, repair work has always been a stable business. You can always fall back into that. And most saddle makers hate repair, but uh, you could make a living at it. You yeah. can still make a good living. You make a better living doing repair than you can making new stuff. Right. You know, unless you're willing to charge my prices. <laughs> <laughs> but not, but not everybody can until we well, get to a point. they can. They just won't. Um, Don King was a contributor to keeping the prices low and keeping all the rest of us in check Um, you know back 35 years ago Don King would build a full tooled saddle for $3,500 we couldn't tool it for $3,500 let alone build it and uh, you know so he didn't need the money from the saddle making he was making the money through the store the store was making the income, so he built saddles for what he felt cowboys could afford to pay. Right. And that's what his premise was. Right. Well, but he was the best at the time. Right. So he's the guy keeping everybody else. That set the bar. <laughs> Nobody can go above the bar unless you can build a better saddle. Well, we couldn't. Right. So how are we going to set the bar any higher? <laughs> you know, and so then you got uh, the clinicians came along and uh, plain saddles got popular rough-out saddles got popular and you know guys like Dale Harwood that made his living doing nice tool saddles didn't take him long to switch to the rough-out game (laughs) you know and building for Bray Hunt uh, was a big deal and so um, that shifted that thing too so now if you weren't a tooler but you could build saddles you could still make a decent living yeah but you were still having to build kind of at a wholesale level so that the clinician could get a little bit of a cut and the price wasn't too high that the buyer wouldn't buy it yeah well i did the same thing to a degree until i got this store right and when i put this store together we had the additional income from the retail sales right and the belt and buckle business was really really good right when you're in a tourist location like this not everybody needs a saddle but everybody's got pants to hold up (laughs) and uh, so that's a good marketing campaign. We we, you know, people would ask, well, we don't need a saddle. To, will you make us a belt? Well, we wouldn't make wallets because there's no money in wallets. But sure, we'll make you a belt, you know. And we were building belts for 150 bucks for a tool belt, and uh, it with a belt though you need a buckle. That's right. Well, we didn't sell buckles, <laughs> so yeah, we'll build you a belt, but we have gotta know what kind of buckle you're gonna put it. Well, we don't really have a buckle. Do you have any buckles? It's yeah. A, we, about the third time I said, no, we don't sell buckles, I got in the buckle business. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, you know, the belt and buckle business, and I hired several guys just to make belts and buckles, and we made, you know, three to five hundred belts a year. Wow. Well, we were six months backlogged on $150 belts, and uh, one of my best, what turned in to be one of my best clients, um, his office is Fifth Avenue in New York, his home is Park Avenue in New York. You know, I found out later on he was number six on Fortune 500's list. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, pretty knowledgeable in the finance side of things. And yeah. he took me in the back room one day and he said, I'm going to give you some advice. You need to pay attention. <laughs> he said, you should go through your orders and figure out how many of them would pay twice as much. If half of them would pay twice as much, then it's a no-brainer. You should double the price. Well, that made sense. I'm 20-some years old, you know, so what do I know about the finance industry? I said to him, I said, but you'd be one of the ones paying twice as much. He said, I can afford it. I'm tired of waiting twice as long.
0: That's the thing, yeah. So
1: we doubled the price. It took me a couple of months to work up the nerve to double the price. Yeah, yeah. We went from $150 to $300 on a tool belt. Yeah. The guys that were complaining about the price at $150 went away. Yeah. But our orders doubled in 30 days. Isn't that crazy? Because we had a whole new set of clients. Yeah. But guess what? They weren't buying the cheapest buckle we had. No. They were buying that mid-range to high-grade buckle. And so we went from selling $200 buckles to $1,000 buckles to $2,000 buckles. Wow. And instead of making you know, $50,000 a year on belts and buckles, we went to making half a million, three quarters of a million dollars in belts and buckles so uh, you know instead of that average buckle being five six hundred the average buckle was twenty five hundred right and so it changed everything and that so that also gave us the money to fund the saddle shop right and so the retail store subsidized the saddle shop for a while Right. And what we learned was in the summertime the retail store could subsidize the saddle shop, and in the wintertime, the saddle shop subsidized the retail store. It was no business in the winter time. Yeah. But uh, you know we had eight or ten guys up here uh, uh, when we when we when the store was running full swing, and this is a pretty crowded shop with eight or ten guys in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, we did a little wholesale work, but almost exclusively was just retail stock in our own store. Yeah. And so. Um. But It it turned into a really good big business for us that way. But having that high-end product in the retail store brought in that high-end client off the street. Yeah. And they're looking for something they can't buy in their own hometown. Yeah. And then we would start stacking up the saddle orders. And they were pretty fancy at that time. Right. And we got into about a four-year backlog. Oh, wow. Stayed that way for about a decade. And that's too far. I can tell you, you don't want to be that far out. That's no, too far. That's, that's a long way. Uh, it's the... a long ways out. Um, and prices kept going up. We didn't lock prices in for that long. But, right. Um, you know, we were, I don't know, I think we had a base price early on was probably around 2000 to 2500 And, you know, today the base price is 10000 Really? Really? Um, yeah. And they keep coming They keep coming. Wow. Um, We get clients now. I would say the bulk of my clients now are clients that came to us 10 years earlier and either didn't like the price or didn't like the waiting list or both. (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, went and bought four or five saddles from other saddle makers and ended up with problems here and problems there and eventually came back to us and, Wish they had come back 10 years earlier. If they'd have spent the money and got on the list 10 years earlier, they'd have had their saddle yeah. and they wouldn't have had problems. Yeah. Um, I have an unconditional satisfaction guarantee, and very few people will do that. And I can do it because I have the experience. yeah And I could also do it because I had the retail store. If it didn't work for you, it'll work for somebody. Right. And I'm going to take it back. I'm going to write you a check. Uh, there's only been two saddles in my entire career. That uh, came back, and I wrote him a check, and and, uh, actually there's been a third. The guy wanted a a three-and-a-half-inch kennel. I told him, no, you don't. Everybody in your area is riding a four. Everything you've seen is a four. You think it's three-and-a-half. It's not. You're going to want a four. Nope, got to have a a three-and-a-half. I built the saddle, but I bought an extra tree when I built it because I know it's coming back. (laughs) And it did. Uh, He had it about two weeks and said, I guess you were right. Can I get the... Four inch, yeah, I've already got the tree in stock. <laughs> so, you know, but in every case, the saddles would come back and I'd resell them, usually within hours of them getting here. So wow. um, I think that's one of the true tests of a saddle maker's abilities is how many of those saddles are on the resale market. Yeah, yeah And even today, how many saddles, and as much as I uh, criticize, and I have the right to criticize Ralph and I earned it. But, uh, I mean, he was a crabby man to work for. But very seldom does one of his saddles come up available for sale used. They're crude, but they fit the horse, they fit the rider, and they're strong enough for the application. And you seldom see one available for sale used. Right. So in his later years where he had other people building them and contracting them, see a lot of those on the open market, but very few those 30-year-old ones.
0: Yeah, yeah. And same
1: thing with, you know, like mine or Dale Harwood's or Don King's saddles. They just don't... They never hit the secondary market. They keep them forever. Yeah. If you see one, you can get a fortune for it. Yeah. You know, this one... This one over here uh, came back. um, It's been in a collection for probably 10 or 15 years. And the guy's got cancer and he's getting older and he's dispersing a lot of his collection. And so... Um, he sent it back to me. It's never been on a horse. And uh, uh, I had it on display at the Brenton Museum all summer at that uh, collection they had there in the Leatherworker Show. Right. And uh, so we got it back a couple of months ago and um, finally got around to pricing it. And for saddles like that, we have a list of people. So we just, you know, call a person on the list yeah. looking for that. Yeah. And. Uh, First person Lisa called took it immediately, but it's twenty five thousand dollar saddle. Wow! So when they hit the secondary market, the prices are going up. Yeah, they appreciate in value, and and it, they don't last. But you know, well, usually it's the first person you offer it to. Yeah, I never put them on the open market. Yeah, yeah, private deal. <laughs> yeah, also private. Oh, that's interesting. So we have the ability to charge those prices. I was going to tell you earlier. I, I set out to be successful. I didn't set out to make more saddles. I'd already made more saddles in my lifetime than most people make in several careers. I worked in the factories, but I worked a lot of hours. Right. You know, um, When I was working in Arizona, I didn't have a life. I worked 16, 18 hours a day, every single day, seven days a week. That's all I did. Right. So I made a lot of saddles, and um, now my body's wore out. And, uh, but I didn't need to have more orders i needed to make a living right you know i had a young family and i was if i wasn't going to make a living then i wasn't going to do it yeah and so we just charged what it cost yeah did not look at competitors or anything didn't care this is what my overhead is this is what my material costs are this is how much money i want to get paid yeah. This is how much money i'm paying my staff
0: exactly
1: and so this is how much it's going to be and if you can't afford it i'm sorry we won't build it for you somebody can yeah and we had enough clients walking through the front door that could and so we learned that they will pay you just have to ask for it yeah and that's really what's happening today is i don't have any trouble selling saddles for 10 to twenty thousand dollars, but other people are saying well how do you get it how do you get it well you just ask because if you keep offering it to them for four or five, they're going to take it. They'll take that. <laughs> you bet. So there's yeah. always going to be a, a saddle maker to build it for half what you're willing to build it for anyways. Yeah. So I try to encourage these guys, figure out what you need to make it in your shop with your overhead and how much money you want to make yeah. and just charge it. Yeah. Somebody will pay it.
0: Yeah. That's what I found out in the long run with with the Colt starting and, and stuff like that is, and I was the same when the accountant said we should raise our prices. I just thought oh, I don't want to do that. It's, it's very so hard. hard. And there's people out there that I want to help, and they need my help, um, who can't afford it. And right. that, and so why would I want to raise my prices? You know. But um, but we had the same experience when we when we did, and we had to because we were strapped for time. Right. right? We were absolutely fully. Booked. You can only handle so you long can only of a do backlog. So <laughs> much. You know. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and we had a longer waiting list. Right. after that but like you say the clientele did shift as well mm-hmm. and people stopped asking um, you know how long is it going to take and um, you know their first question wasn't uh, how much is it right you know it's, it's just a shift in perspective. I imagine
1: the stuff. quality of horses that you got the brought to was a lot
0: different too. Yeah yeah and, and don't get me wrong I, I, I want to help anybody I want to you know help it doesn't have to be a fancy horse and doesn't have to be a wealthy person, but like you say, I do have to make a living. I want to
1: help them too. I have but to. But I had money. to learn I need to help me first. <laughs> and that was a really hard lesson to learn. It is hard, yeah. You know, because when I was working in the saddle shops all over the country, I was making $10, 15 $20. I would never make 20 bucks an hour. But that being said, I was making $15 an hour at Bob's Western World 45 years ago. That was an insane amount of, their That's saddle shops good. won't pay 15 now. Yeah. You've got to be a saddle maker and a tooler to get that. And back then, no. They paid huh. either one that. I'll be darned. So a yeah. lot of difference. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing how it changes, um, and I guess there's other factors. I mean, as you gain skill and experience and stuff, then, of course, you can charge more, and you're charging more for not just your time, like a dollar for an hour, but, the experience that you've gained up to that point right. is worth. It,
1: it, you know, uh, just because it takes so many hours to do a job doesn't make you worth fifty bucks an hour. But if you're really good at what you do, yeah, you might be worth a hundred bucks an hour. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So, with the retail store and the and the saddle shop here in Cody, what, um, what, what's your primary business now, as far as? Uh,
1: what can people what what can people come here for what did, what do you find that that they come here for most of my business is still the saddle business um, Nine out of the twelve months in the year are saddles right you know yeah um, the other four months interspersed throughout the year i'm making I still make a lot of belts I make quite a bit of gun leather holsters and rifle scabbards, yep. Um, once in a while there will be a briefcase or a, a you know, a, some executive thing. Some. But briefcases random. went out of style a long time ago, and there, so it's pretty rare to do that. Um, once in a while, though, someone will have something specially. Everything I make is custom. I, right. I haven't made something for stock in years and years and years. That's cool. Um, so... I have tried some things once in a while. I might be able to talk a client into trying something new and different, but um, as a general rule, there's not much more for me to try. I've done it all. Uh, I see these younger saddle makers trying to build things beyond their skill level and I'm like spend a little more time on the basics until you get the basics mastered before you try something you don't ha- know how to do yet. Uh, I look back at that, though, and realize the only way that I got to where I am was I had to push myself at that those same kind of things. Fine balance. Try not to be too critical of them, but some of them are trying way too soon. You made four saddles. Now I'm going to build a one piece. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, you shouldn't do that. I started doing the, the swells where the seat is recessed into the swell. Mm-hmm. I, know, I was working in California at the time, so it was early '90s. That was the first time I had done it. Yeah, I'd never seen it done before. Right, and. Uh, uh, then I showed it at a couple of shows, probably showed it at the Sheridan Leather show, you know, and didn't take very long until I got knocked off, you know. <laughs> now it's probably one of the more popular things for people to do and I hardly ever do it anymore. It's so hard. Yeah. And I charge a lot extra for it. <laughs> and these other guys are doing it for free. And I'm like, why would you do that? Yeah. You can charge a lot more for it. <laughs> and so I you know, I don't I quit doing stuff like that for free. But yeah. Um there's a lot of those innovations over the years that I've come up with that now are industry standards you know when i started a a good flat plate rigging didn't or i'm sorry a good in skirt rigging didn't exist right there were decent flat plates but in skirts were still evolving right you know and now the way i do my in skirts is was the industry leading standard for a long time there's a another guy named terry henson down in texas that's doing them a little bit different um and so a lot of guys are doing it that way now too but um there's not a lot of new things. Right. You know, I came up with a design on a belt I don't know, tw- over 20 years ago. And uh, we call it a Western Exotic where you, but it was bi- designed kind of with the concept of how I had recessed the seat into the swell. Okay. So I wanted I was doing belts where it was exotic leather in the back of the belt, but tooled leather billets, but recessed so that they were flush, not yeah. overlaid on yeah. top. Yeah. They're pretty difficult to make. And uh, it was extremely popular. It was knocked off. And it's still, you know, it's one of the more popular belts in the world. How, how do you come up with something new on a belt? You know, yes. pretty much some things have been done to death. Yeah. So yeah. they're not a lot of new things, but yeah. I've enjoyed some of those um, uh, innovations in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, now... You know, they, they still beat my door down, but it's usually because of problems that they're having, horse fit problems, um, performance issues. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So, now you grew up around horses, and of course I actually got to go by your dad's place there in Thermop here a few weeks ago and meet him. and
1: He and does see some have of those arguably one of the nicest herds of western-style Morgans in the world they are nice horses yeah, not a bad one in the bunch it took a long it. time to refine that herd to where it is but I they're bet. not a bad colt in the bunch i bet now hey. they're all it's great business because the colts are all sold by the time they're weaned that's the way to do it <laughs> yeah you bet so
0: what's one of your favorite horses of all time that you've owned or worked with just share oh. a story about a cool horse or a tricky horse
1: yeah well there's a lot of those (laughs) I've always kind of like you I I trained a lot of horses and I always rode the rough string and every time i get one broke I'd either sell him or hand him off to somebody else and I never got to ride the finished horses you know so um, in the last 20 years I've spent more time finishing horses and getting them you know completely finished bridle horses and that takes a lot of work you know a lot of work a lot of time but it's real rewarding to me to do that outside the saddle shop Yeah. Um, I have one now that He's probably my favorite horse that I've ever had. That's cool. But I created him, you know, I bought him. I, he's one of our colts, and I raised him from a colt, and I picked his mother. Uh, we've had several stallions that have been just goldmine stallions, and this one was basically the entire herd is developed from that particular sire. He was right. that good. Right. And uh, this colt is out of him. But uh, we've also learned the value of the mare, and this particular mare was uh, uh, a Morgan reigning champion okay. in, the, in the Morgan World Show, and so uh, she was pretty hot, you know, and older, I think she was 16 or 18 when this colt was born, but I, as soon as he hit the ground, I wanted him, and, uh, <laughs> and he was challenging. He's got a great big personality, um, but I trained him to be pretty aggressive, I had trained one earlier that I wanted this, you know, gentle, quiet, soft, um, you know, all-around ranch horse. Right. And beautiful, nice, finished Palomino horse. Loved him. Got him all done realized, I am bored to death with this horse. (laughs) He was just... There's no excitement here. So (laughs)
0: too predictable.
1: I started this young cult and I said, I'm gonna teach this in the opposite and I did. I everything if I asked for something, it was a demand for an immediate hard response so now if you ask him to move he's gonna move and you better be hanging on right (laughs) but you know i can climb to the top of a pine tree with that horse there's nothing he won't do for me yeah but we have a relationship and i'm kind of in love with him and he's very (laughs) photogenic we've been in several magazine articles and stuff he's pretty cool horse that's awesome Um, i'm working on a new one now that's a replacement for lisa's old horse he's 23 and it uh, takes a while to get them broke, good enough for her to ride, you know. Right. So, yeah. and I just I find that I no longer have the tolerance for the colt stuff, <laughs> you know. Uh, they want to get all excited over a slicker. It's like, get over this crap. I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't have a lot of tolerance left for that. I need to hand that off to some young guy that wants to put up with it. Right, yeah, it can take I do time. like finishing them, you know, when it comes time to putting a nice handle on them and getting them finished. But,
0: yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Keith, I sure appreciate you sitting down and visiting with me. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any anything There's else? no end to things. We can oh, talk about it. We I can know. talk for hours and hours. We could be here for another day.
1: Easily. Easily. Oh. What,
0: um, where can people find your work? Online, websites, social media handle?
1: We have a website, of course, It's spelled S-E-I, so nobody can figure it out. S-E-I-D-E-L. Um, and the uh, the website's pretty extensive, and then uh of course we have a Facebook and Instagram presence, and all of that at least it takes care of it all because if it was up to me for social media, there wouldn't be any. <laughs> I don't play well with others, I think so um but yeah, we're pretty easy to find yeah, you don't have to walk in the front door, actually, the front door is never open anyways, so.
0: <laughs> well, like I said, thank you so much for for the visit
1: and uh Yeah. It's my pleasure. I enjoy your content. I've enjoyed listening to some of your podcasts and especially like watching your videos. And I appreciate your horsemanship. Well, thank you, sir. It means a lot.
0: Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Life in the Saddle Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and leave a five-star rating or review. Remember,
1: you can find us on social media or our website, TrueWestHorsemanship.com.